We're in 1 Corinthians this morning, so if you would please, in your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians, and we are in chapter 9 together today. We're going to take the text a little bit at a time together this morning in our reading. Okay, we are looking at 23 verses together today. Um, but what I'd like to do is just uh, recall and set the scene for where we are. And again, if this seems a bit redundant to you because we do this every week, I just want to challenge you on that and say redundancy is actually needed to let these things be seated in our minds, right? Okay, so here is our outline of where we've been coming from in the book of 1 Corinthians. And as you can see, uh, we've come pretty far. Uh, we're in chapter 9, but we're in a large heading. Don't forget where we're at. He's currently addressing things that the Corinthian church wrote to Paul about. You remember this? And then we are in a subcategory of that right now concerning a particular thing that the Corinthians wrote to him about. Okay? The first thing they wrote to him about was concerning marriage. That's not where we're at right now. They wrote to him also concerning food offered to idols. And that's where our text is found. And if you were to take this text removed from its context it would be very, very difficult to ascertain the fact that this is couched underneath a, a larger category, okay? He's talking about food offered to idols, and that might seem strange if you, if you just open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and read this, but we know it, and we shouldn't turn a blind eye to it, okay? So we are reading in context this morning. Not only are we reading, but we are preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians in its proper context. Now, just a word on uh, literary genres in the Bible for a moment, if I would, okay? You recognize, right, that the Bible is not all written in the same uh, genre, right? Is all of the book poetry, for example? Would it change your reading of the Bible if all of the Bible were poetry? If the, the letter to, to the Corinthians was poetry, would you interpret it differently uh, than if it were an actual historical letter to a real historical church? Uh, yes, because you expect in poetry for there to be highly symbolic language, right, in poetry. But that's not what we should find here, okay? So when we read the Psalms and we talk about the, 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 the majesty of God and rushing waters, oh, it's very symbolic, isn't it? Well, the Psalms were songs written to be sung, and so they're poetic, right? But when we read a letter, we're expected for uh, the point to come across much more clearly and plainly. Wouldn't you agree? Okay, so when we're reading, we might expect uh, Paul to address his audience in this letter kind of straight to the point. Just tell us what you want to tell us. We're asking you about food offered to idols. Is it okay? Is it not okay? Just, can you just say yes or no? It's, it's either okay or it's not okay, or just to get to the point. I just need to let you know, Paul doesn't get to his point until the very end of our 23 verses today. He takes his time getting to the point. So while I could just tell you the point, I'm not going to do that because that's not the way the word was delivered to us. You understand? So if I take away, and I read all this, and I say, anyway, what Paul's saying here is this, and I summarize it in a sentence for you, I'm detracting from the way in which the Lord intended this word to be delivered to us. Does that make sense? And so what we're going to do is we're going to actually walk through the text as it's given so that we might properly understand it, not only in its context 
in the literature, like its context in the letter, but also its context in its mode of transmission. How does Paul intend to transmit this information to them? Simply by saying, here's a list of rules, now do these things? Or does he intend to come at it from another angle? You ask a question and he says, well, let me ask you a question. Okay? And so he's going to teach them, but we just need to be prepared that the way that he's going to teach them takes a little time to get to the point, and that's intentional. And so we're going to intentionally take our time to get to the point. Okay? So that's where we're headed this morning. And as we normally do, I'm going to walk through the text by means of an outline to help us better understand what's being said. Number one, let's look at verses one through three together. If you can recall, and just look there for a second, chapter 8, verse 13, where did it leave off? Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Okay, so obviously that's about food offered to idols, right? Um, but what we see in verses uh, 1 through 3 is something a little different. Okay, and we might think that he's starting something brand new, but I just, I'm telling you, he's not starting something new here. He's continuing on with his argument talking about idols, okay? So here we go. Verses 1 through 3. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Paul has not switched to a discourse regarding the defense of his apostleship. Okay? That is not, we're not in a new category of thought. He's talking about food offered to idols, and we need to know that. But he's setting us up. That is what he's doing. Not like a bad setup. He's setting us up to fall. No, he's setting us up to understand. Okay? So this is a setup. And what is he doing in this setup? He's asserting his, his apostleship. That's the first thing we need to know as we approach what he's about to say. Does this make sense? So he's saying, here's what I need you to know. And he asked a few questions, and the questions all expect a positive response, at least the way it's, we have it in English, okay? It's expecting a positive response. He asks, am I not free? The answer, oh, yes. I mean, yes, you are free, okay. Am I not an apostle? Well, yes, you're an, you're an apostle. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes, you've seen Jesus our Lord. Where are you going with this, Paul? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Yes, we are your workmanship in the Lord. Even if some other people are questioning Paul about his apostleship, the Corinthians cannot question him about his apostleship because their very existence proves his apostleship, right? We remember that Paul was on a missionary journey. He stopped in Corinth, and he established the church there. He preached the gospel there. He first turned to the Jews, and then he went to the Gentiles uh, because the Jews rejected him. And so then he begins preaching, and they believe, and now he devotes his time for a year and a half to the church in Corinth, right? We remember this whole situation? You can find that in the book of Acts. Okay, so here he is. He's saying, some can question my apostleship, but you better not because you should know better because you wouldn't exist as a church if it wasn't for me, right? Okay, so you are my seal of apostleship. So that wording kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Okay, again, the whole chapter is not about Paul defending his apostleship. Um, So 
uh, he's just setting up for us what all is to come. Okay, that's, that's enough on verses one through three because it's just a setup of what's to come. Okay, so what, what follows next? Number two, uh, Paul examines his rights, his rights as what you think? As an apostle. Otherwise, why did he set up his apostleship first, right? So he asserts that I am an apostle. Is anyone disagreeing? Well, some might disagree, but you can't disagree, right? Okay, so he is an apostle, and as an apostle, he has some rights. And now Paul will examine the rights that he has uh, by giving us some examples. Verse 4. You that verse 4? Do we not have the right to eat and drink? That's his first right that he examines. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? So Paul is saying, as an apostle, do I not have the right to eat and drink? I do not think that this is connected to the eating and drinking of food offered to idols. I think it's actually connected to something different, and I'll tell you what that is here in just a second. Okay? Um, First, I want to ask, who is the we? Do you see that? Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right? So he continues going on. There's multiple people involved here. Okay? Who's the we? We have a couple of options. And yes, the options matter. Okay? Because this is, he's building a case. And his case, and once he builds it, and he has this case, he's going to say, see, now do this. Okay? But we've got to wait. We've got to wait till the do what? So he's building a case. And if we don't understand the case he's building, we're not going to know what to do. Okay, let's properly understand the case. He's saying we, who are the we? Uh, we like the all-inclusive we, like we? Or we as in apostles? Or has he been talking about some other group of people? So this could be uh, Paul and Apollos. Could be Paul and Peter. Could be Paul and Barnabas, because Barnabas, Barnabas is about to be mentioned. Could be Paul and all the rest of the apostles. Um, this gets a little tricky to actually understand because the word apostle can be used in a couple of different ways. And I'll illustrate that, first of all, with the word deacon, okay? Uh, I have it on the screen for you. Deacon can be used in like a lowercase d deacon term. And in that sense, it's just someone who serves. A deacon is a servant, okay? Uh, The Greek word for servant is daukane. And so we understand that the word deacon is just a transliteration from a Greek word. It's not a real English word. It's a made-up word. The word deacon is a made-up word. You need to know that, okay? Um, if we were to just translate it, though, it would just be servant, okay? The office of servant. But that's not what we say. We say the office of deacon. But when it's not being used in an office sense, um, we have deacon used, lowercase d. And Jesus says in John 12... If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. All of those words for serve are the word deacon. So in one sense, every single believer is a deacon. Okay? But lowercase d, not, not, not uppercase d. Okay? Because it's, it's a broad term encompassing a lot of things. But there's another sense that the word deacon is used, and it's used in a narrow sense, that is a specific one who serves in a specific place in a specific role with specific qualifications. Okay? Uh, in this, we have, for example, uh, Romans 16.1. Um, I commend you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencria. Now, she was sent for a specific, specific task from a specific church with specific qualifications on her as one who is trustworthy to do the job. Okay? That's used in a narrow sense. 
That is, Phoebe, deacon of the church in Sencria, because she was simply serving the church with a particular task. Or Colossians 4, 7, and 8. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant. Okay? So there's another person, Tychicus, who is also known as a servant. Okay? Or a deacon, as you might say. But anyway, I'm using this as an illustration to show you that in the same way, because I, I think we might be familiar with this idea, in the same way that deacon is used in two senses, the word apostle is also used in two senses. An apostle can have a broad understanding because it simply means apostolos is simply a sent one, someone who's sent. Okay, so it has a broad meaning, it has a narrow meaning. And so the broad meaning is someone who is sent. Philippians 2.25, for example. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister. Your messenger and minister. Now, the word messenger there is apostolos. Your apostle, you could say, okay? It, because it's just someone who's sent, a person who's sent, okay? Now, there were some who were sent that were a little more special, and we call those the apostles, capital A, right? Okay, uh, this is a specific one who's sent out by the Lord himself with specific qualifications, as you see in Acts chapter 1, for example, the apostles, Okay? All that makes sense? Yes? So if you simply say one of the apostles, what do you mean by that? He was an apostle. He was one who was sent. Are we talking about the 12 or include Paul 13? Include Judas, even though he's dead, that'd actually be 14. But who are we including exactly? Or is it just someone who is sent out generally? The question we're actually trying to answer is, who is Paul talking about? And does what he's saying only relate to apostles, capital A, or to more than just capital A apostles? You get why that's maybe important? Who does this apply to? Does all of the Bible apply to everyone in the same way? The answer is no to that if you didn't know. The answer is no to that, okay? Is all the truth relevant truth for all people? Absolutely. But does it apply in the exact same way to all people? It does not, okay? So who is being discussed here? I would summarize this by saying, as those sent out to do the work of the Lord, do they not have the right, for, uh, the right for the church to provide their basic needs of food and drink? That's what he's asking. Do I not have the right to eat and drink? And as one who was sent out, whether it be sent out from the Lord or sent out on a mission to accomplish these tasks, actually it doesn't matter because he is sent out to do the work of the Lord. Don't you remember he, he was talking about Apollos earlier? Is Apollos an apostle, capital A? No, but he was including Apollos in his work. So they were both sent out to do the work of the Lord. One of them being an apostle, the other one not being an apostle, but yet maintaining the same rights on themselves. You follow me? In Luke 10, and this is a, a text I'm going to be referencing a little bit later, um, it, it has some helpful words for us. This is a good one to turn to. I, I want to read this. It's verses one through eight. It actually helps us better understand the context that Paul's coming at this from. Uh, Luke 10, one through eight. It says, after this, the Lord, that is Jesus himself, appointed 72. Some of your Bibles may say 70 because that's the textual variant issue. Others and sent them on ahead of him two by two 
in every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out. What do you think the word there is? That is a form of the, of the, of the word apostle, but it's the verb form. I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. And whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And here's the point we're getting to. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Okay, that's the point. Paul is saying, as someone sent out to do the work of the Lord, just as the 72 were sent out, they were to just depend on those who were being ministered to to provide for their needs. So Paul is saying, do, not, do I not have the right to eat and drink? And they'd say, well, I mean, you are doing the work of the Lord, I suppose. I guess you do have the right to eat and drink. That makes sense? Okay, so we're just examining Paul's rights that he has. Remember, he's setting us up. This is still the setup, okay? So he's, he examines another right in verse five. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas. Just remember that Cephas is another name for Peter, okay? Now, he says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? What is, what's the answer to that? Well, he says, just think, for example, of the other apostles, and also think of Cephas, Peter. Was Peter married? We know for a fact, actually, it's the one that we know with absolute certainty who was married because uh, this is referenced on a couple of occasions, uh, this being one of them, right? He's saying, don't you remember and know, as you should, Peter was married. Now, this kind of destroys the Roman Catholic argument um, because they require that their priests are, are non-married, okay? But the first pope, in their opinion, Peter, actually was married, okay? It doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? Um, but either way, um, he's saying, do we not have that right? Who else has this right? to take along a believing wife. Well, the other apostles, which may indicate that more of the apostles were married than just Peter, but then also the brothers of the Lord. I have a, uh, this is something you should be mindful of. Again, something Roman Catholics reject, which is interesting. I didn't really put that together, but uh, Matthew 13, 55 and 56. Is this not the carpenter's son? Who is this, by the way? Je this is Jesus. Is he not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Yes. Are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Who is that? Jesus' brothers. Literally his brothers. Okay? That is, Mary had other children. Now, they would, they would be Jesus' half-brothers. Why? Because these were not conceived by the Holy Spirit. They were conceived by Joseph and Mary. So they're, they're his half-brothers in that sense, right? But he has four of them. Um, that are listed here, and his sisters, plural. Jesus had sisters, okay? Now, why do Roman Catholics reject this? This is a different conversation, but I mentioned it. So it's because they believe in a doctrine, the, the perpetual virginity of Mary, okay? And where does that come from? Yeah, I, I don't know. Anyway, um, okay, so the point being, the brothers of Jesus James is, is responsible for the, the book of James that we have in our Bible, by the way. That's Jesus' brother, James. He wrote the letter, the, the letter by his name, James. And then we also have Jude, 
which is Judas, which is also Jesus' brother. So two of Jesus' brothers wrote books in our New Testament, if you weren't aware of that, okay? And so we have these letters, and of, and of course they have a close association with the apostles, and of course they're on a high standard, and they're saying, do they not have wives? And they're like, well, yes. So, so am I not able to have a wife? Of course, a believing wife, but am I not? To, and of course, the answer is, well, I suppose you do. And now he's getting to his main point in verse 6. His main point is this. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? This is another right that he's examining, okay? He's saying Barnabas and I have something in common. Do you remember that Barnabas is the one that there was a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey and they split? But now he's appealing to Barnabas. I think things have maybe been patched up. But he's appealing to Barnabas and he's saying, Barnabas and I have something in common that uh, we refrain from working for a living. Or is that true? Or is he saying, Barnabas and I have something in common. We both work for a living, but we don't have to. That's what he's saying, okay? I just, it, there, there's like a negative, do, uh, is it only I who have no right to refrain? There's a lot of like negative, like what is being said there. He's saying, Paul and Barnabas work for a living, but is it only us, we, Barnabas and I, who have this right? Let's examine this a little bit. And that's what he does in the following verses. He's about to examine this reality of refraining from working for a living. And you might think, don't forget, we're talking about food offered to idols. This is a setup to his point, okay? He's setting them up and he's gonna hit them with something at the end, okay? Just don't lose sight of that. But we just have to understand it first, okay? His right to refrain from working. Let's look at verses six through uh, 14 a little bit. But here's Paul's main point. Paul's main point is this, is that he has a rightful claim on financial support from the Corinthian church. Okay, that's his main point. He is speaking to the church in Corinth and he's saying, I have a right and my right is that you should be financially supporting me. That is my right. And they might say, well, okay, obviously Paul's asking for money, okay? But Paul's saying, listen, that's not what I'm doing here, but I do want to uh, make my main point. And the way he does this, again, is not simply by saying, I have a right for you to pay me. That's not what he does. Instead, he gives them some illustrations, okay, first. So he's going to assert his claim on financial support with three pieces of irrefutable evidence. And that's what verses 7 through 14 are. Why is he doing this? Where is the application? What are we to do with this text here we have in front of us? Just wait. I'm telling you, let's get through it. You're going to see it, okay? So here we go. He gives three pieces of evidence. The first piece of evidence is this. Uh, he gives three Again, three inside of this one, three illustrations from the world. So here are the three illustrations from the world. They're in verse seven. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Answer, 
uh, that doesn't happen. No one does that, right? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Again, the expectation here is, well, no one does that. It's common knowledge that people who plant a vineyard uh, eat the fruit, right? Okay, who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Again, the answer is, well, no one does that. And he's saying, right, right. He wants them to make the conclusion without him just telling them. If a soldier is compensated, if a farmer is compensated, and if a shepherd is compensated, they're all working and they're compensated. Put the pieces together. I'm working and I should be compensated. That's, that's his point. So the summary of what he's saying here is those who work in service for the benefit of others naturally receive their livelihood from their service efforts, right? And this is universally recognized. Okay, that's, that's the first. Now, number two, he gives two examples here from the law. Remember, he is telling them that he has a right to refrain from working and he's giving them three pieces of evidence. The first piece of evidence was some illustrations from the world, okay? The second piece of evidence are two examples from the law. He's saying, well, if you can't understand how the world works, maybe you can understand how the law works. Let me give you some reasons from the law of Moses that I should be paid for my work. So, that's verses 8 through 13. Do I say these things on human authority? Am I just making this stuff up? Right? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope that the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Here, he, here he's about to give a huge insight into his point. If we have sown spiritual things among you, this is verse 11, is it too much that we reap material things from you? Do you, do you hear it? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And then verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food, their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Excuse me. So two pieces of evidence. Number one, uh, these examples from the law, Deuteronomy 25.4, that is, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Do you understand what's being said there? When an ox is working in a field, don't put a muzzle on him because he can't eat the food while he's working, right? Don't muzzle an ox while he's treading out the grain. Let him reap the benefit of his work. And he's, he, Paul is again saying, right? Don't you get it yet? Don't you get it yet? I have a claim on you to pay me. Provide for me. Okay, but then he said, well, if that doesn't do it for you, how about this? Those who are employed in the temple service, how are they paid? They get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. How are they provided for? Other people bring offerings to the Lord, 
and it is their inheritance, right? That's Deuteronomy 18.1. I'll just read it. The Levitical priest, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with the, in the land. They didn't get land. What did they get? They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. Okay? So, in the priest, we're going way back in time. Did you go there with me? Okay, this is not like current. This is like we got we to gotta transport back in time, and this is how things were operating. But, but Paul's point remains the same. Those who work in service to others, the world understands it. The law of Moses understands it. You might not understand it yet. But I guess let's give a third piece of evidence to make this irrefutable. Jesus commanded it. And that's where he goes next. Um, it is one statement from the Lord in verse 14. It says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Why not just say that first? Why go around and then get to that? Why not just say, Jesus said it, that did it, it's done, okay? Because um, that's not how he intended to give this information. He wants you to see it from all over the world, examples from the world, examples from the law. Can't you see that this is important? The Lord commanded it. Now, when did Jesus command it? Do we have that in the Gospels anywhere? Do we have that recorded anywhere that the Lord commanded it? In fact, we do. Two places, Matthew 10.10, Luke 10.7, actually in reference to the same event, okay? I want you to turn with me, actually. I have this on the screen, don't I? Yeah, go to that next one, Rob. There we go. This is 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. And the reason I have this here is for summary. Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, where's Timothy about to go? Like, as 1 Corinthians is being written, where is Timothy about to go? He's about to go to Corinth, right? Paul trained Timothy in what he should do and how he should behave and how he should instruct the church, Okay. Paul gives this exact same argument in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, and he actually uses the same references. So I just want to read it for you. But he applies it not to the apostles, but to a different group. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, oh, look, here it is. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Deuteronomy 25.4. And another quotation, the laborer deserves his wages. That's a quotation from Jesus, Matthew 10.10, Luke 10.7. Okay? In two different places, Paul wants Timothy to understand that the elders of the church, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, are worthy of double honor. And that actually means double price, double income. That's what it means double value. But his arguments are the same. I just want you to see with me that Paul's arguments from 1 Corinthians 9 apply also to elders in the local church. Do you see it? You should see it. I hope you do, that connection. Let me just make a note here. Um, I am not preaching this because I'm wanting to be paid more. Okay? 
The church supplies my needs, but it is offered to us in this text. And so I'm not going to ignore it. Okay. It's here. I don't ignore other things. Why would I ignore this? I just want to make that clear to everyone, whether you're visiting us or not. Okay. I do also though want to make it clear that it is a biblical principle that those who labor in preaching and teaching are worthy of double pay, more than what you think they're worth. That's what, the t- that's what Paul told Timothy. And Paul's going to go into a little bit more detail about this, but you, I, w- I also want you to know that while the church does now, see, I, I went seven, almost eight years um, working primarily another job in addition to my efforts here at the church. And it was only this past summer when I became completely supported by this local church. Now, I am completely supported by this local church and I'm incredibly thankful. And it is right. In fact, it is a right that I have. Do you see what's being said here? It is a right that I have. Now, the church has been paying me, but not the same the whole time, right? And we have, as this is a connection to, to, to Sam's announcement earlier, it is because we have more people and we have more homes and households and hearts that want to give to support what we're doing here. And part of that is compensating me, providing for my livelihood, and not only that, the livelihood of my entire home, given that I have a five-person household and one income. Okay? When the other elders preach, they are also financially compensated. But as it stands, they primarily work other jobs, but when they give themselves to the task of teaching and preaching, they are compensated for that effort. Now, it may be in the future that as we continue to grow, should the Lord give the growth, that we have other people who step up beside me and are now also supported by the church. That would be wonderful. And that's where I hope, I don't know, because I don't know the Lord's will and I don't know what's going to happen, but I would love to see that happen. Okay? So it's not just something in the law. It's something that Jesus actually commanded. So a church should give themselves to it, right? It was not just something for the apostles, but also for church elders. And I just want you to see that. So a life of devotion to the gospel ministry has a rightful claim on financial support by those who benefit from that ministry. I'm going to read that again. Just listen to my little summary here. A life of devotion to the gospel ministry has a rightful claim on financial support by those who benefit from that ministry. Now, Paul's not saying everybody everywhere who's ever heard me teach must be paying me for what I did. But he's saying, you Corinthian church, I have devoted my life to you. I have given, I give a year and a half of my life to you. I'm writing this letter to you. This wasn't easy. This took time, right? And he said, because I care for you, I'm pouring my life into you in ministry, I then have a claim on you. And that claim is, you should be compensating me for my work because it is work. It is, wor- um, it is work. 
It is work. And the Lord commanded that those who preach the gospel ought to be making their living from the gospel. But, and this is just a little side note here, first, in 1 Peter 5, Peter go, or, did I say Peter or Paul? There is no first Paul. Did I say Paul? 1 Peter 5, uh, he goes on to talk about elders and about how, how while they may be compensated for their work, they're not doing it for the compensation. That's a, that's a difference, isn't it? Actually, how he words it is, this is 1 Peter 5 too, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercise oversight, but not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You're not doing it to get paid more. You're doing it because you want to do it. I tried to not do it, and it didn't work out for me. Only those laughing, I guess, under, know the story, okay? It doesn't work. I, I, I will tell you, I am here because I want to be. I give you the word of God because I can't but give you the word of God. That's why I'm here. So number three. Paul first asserts his apostleship. He examines his rights as an apostle. And then number three, Paul then takes the rights that are his and he gives them up. Verse 15. But I have made no use of these rights. That should be powerful, a statement in itself. He just spent all this time talking about how he has rights. But he says, but I'm not going to make use of them. But you should understand that I have rights, a rightful claim, but I'm not making use of it. Nor am I writing these things to, sh to secure such provision. I'm not writing to you because I want money, right? For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. And so a little bit about Paul here, beginning in verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to you to make full use of my rights in the gospel. So let me just explain what he's saying here, okay? We know that he's not taking hold of his rights for financial support. Paul, we also understand, when he first arrived at Corinth, he had met some other Jews who had also recently arrived in Corinth. Uh, in Rome, so the Jews were expelled from Rome, and so they went on that popular trading route over to Corinth, and they landed there, and Paul met some of them, and he said, hey, what do you do for a living? We make tents for a living. And Paul said, wouldn't you know it, I also make tents for a living. Let's, let's go into partnership. So Paul, we understand, was a tent maker by trade, okay? Uh, probably. It could also be understood as a leather worker, but either way, okay? He was a tent maker by trade. He worked for a year and a half while he was there at the church, okay, in Corinth. He says, I would rather die than give up this right. 
I would rather die than have someone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Is boasting a good thing? I would rather die than not be able to boast. That's what Paul just said. Boast in what? For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. If I preach the gospel, I have no ground for boasting. So he's not talking about his preaching of the gospel. He's like, I'm a gospel preacher. I preach, I build up the church, I make Christ known throughout the world. Look at me. And he's boasting in it. That's, he says, it's not what he's saying. If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. That's not his ground for boasting. Preaching the gospel is not his ground for boasting. What is his ground for boasting? Well, before he gives that, he says, necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Um, what he's saying is, I didn't call myself into gospel ministry. The Lord called me into gospel ministry and there's nothing I can do about it. Do you remember the story of Paul's conversion? Paul was on the road to go put Christians in jail and have them executed. That Paul was on that journey, on that road, and the Lord appeared to him in a bright light. And he said, Saul, Saul, because his name used to be Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay? And then it goes on to say, as Paul actually explains his own conversion, that the Lord called him out for the sake of making him a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. That many will come to know the name of the Lord through him. So Paul was interrupted in his course of events of life to go put some Christians to death. That's what he wanted to do. Instead, now he's going and building churches. It's amazing, isn't it? But Paul didn't decide to do that. He wasn't on the road to him uh, on the road, and he said, uh, "I have a good idea. I think instead of killing Christians, I'm going to support them. I think instead of killing Christians, I'm going to go start churches and make the name of Christ known." Wrong. That's not Paul. Paul was breathing death threats. It says Paul wanted Christians dead. He wanted the church to not exist. But God out of nowhere came and spoke to him and called him into ministry. And so in that moment, the Lord laid upon his lap this task. He gave him something. The Lord gave Paul something. He's holding it. What is that? The gospel ministry. He says, okay, the Lord gave it to me. Can I put it down? This is the gospel ministry given to Paul. He's like, well, I'm going to lay it down. He said, I can't. I try to detach myself from it, but I can't. It's part of me. So what am I to say? That I can boast in my gospel proclamation? Look at what I'm doing. He says, no, I can't boast in that because I can't detach my life from it. It's who I am. And I didn't even decide it. The Lord decided it. So if I preach the gospel, I'm just doing what the Lord made me to do. There's no boasting in that. So because Paul wanted something to boast in, of his own will, he's doing something. See, he didn't become a minister of the gospel of his own will. It wasn't his decision. But he said, but I can make a decision that is of my own will. And my, here's my decision. Here's my ground for boasting. That I will preach the gospel. And even though I have a right to be compensated for it, I'm going to deny my right. And in that, I have a ground for boasting. Understand Paul's argument here? So Paul then, although he has rights, he lays them down. Why? Why? Because Paul's real selfish. He wants to be able to brag and boast in the great greatness that is Paul. You think that's the reason? 
he actually gives us a reason. Um, look at verse 18. Uh, what, what, what is my reward then? That in my preaching I might present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. Right? We understand, we understand that. So he maintains his ground for boasting. And then the next thing he does. Uh, I've decided to skip a few things. He will sacrifice his rights for others. Look at verses 19 and 23. It says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. So I just want you to know that for 18 verses, Paul has been setting us up for verse 19. Okay? Are you ready for it? Though I am free, I have made myself a servant to all in order that I might win more of them. So who is this for? Is it for Paul? Or is it actually for others? Verse 20. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul, what does this have to do with food offered to idols? Just answer our question. Although you have the right to eat that meat, you need to lay down your right for the sake of others. That's the point. Do you hear the point? Now, he didn't just say that, did he? No, he went this long route to get there. But it has more impact because now we feel the heart of Paul here, right? And also, you can't refute him, okay? <laughs> He's gone above and beyond to make his case. There's nothing you can say against it, okay? Why is Paul doing this? Um, because, he, because he wants others to be impacted by the gospel. Why is he laying down his rights? And why should the church in Corinth lay down their rights? In order that other people might be impacted by the gospel. Does it mean that all ministers of the gospel ought to follow Paul's lead and lay down their rights? That it is more godly of me to deny my right of material benefit from the church. It is ungodly of me to receive a paycheck? Or is Paul saying there is freedom here? And in that way, is it not connected to everything that we've been talking about? Do you understand? Some will lay down their rights, such as Paul and Barnabas, right? They laid down their rights. They decided to of their own will but they had the rightful claim to be compensated and they were also not wrong to be compensated, right? And that's why Paul told Timothy, make sure that the elders are compensated, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Make sure they're compensated because he expects that they will be and that every elder won't follow his example and be compensated. But if they want to, they have that right, okay? What is Paul hoping to win them to? Is he hoping to win them to salvation? Because he's talking about who? 
the strong and the weak in the church. How does it relate? There were those who were strong in the church. There were those who were weak in the church. And Paul's trying to help them relate to each other. Is Paul saying, I do all things for the sake of evangelism to unbelievers. I hope that helps you figure this out. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't you understand that everything that we do ought to flow from a heart of gospel impact, whether it be someone coming to know the Lord or actually in context that a believer is built up in the Lord. That's the context. In order that I might win them. The question might be, look at, look at, uh, you don't have to look at it. How can, I'll just ask the questions. How can a saved person be destroyed? Because isn't that what Paul said? By your freedom and your eating, the weak one is destroyed. How can a believer be destroyed? You have to think about that. And if they are no longer destroyed, but they are freed from being destroyed, what's the way you might say that? They're saved. Saved from destruction. Doesn't mean they were about to lose their salvation, but their own conscience is defiled. They were weakened. They were hurt. They were injured as a believer. That is, they fell into the perils of sin. Right? Your choices and what you do with your life has an impact on the unbelieving and specifically in context, the believing world. What you choose to do matters and it has an impact on the rest of the church. Do you see how we arrive there? That's not my own thought. That's what the text is telling us. What you choose to do with your life has an impact on the church. And many times, because we live in the United States, we have an individualistic mentality. What I do impacts me and me only. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. That is not the way the church is to operate. The church is to understand that what you do and what I do, we affect each other in our decisions. And we need to be careful that we're not negatively impacting others by our life decisions. You go into a temple and eat that food just because it's your right to eat it, you're destroying the weaker person and you should have just laid down your rights. Why not lay down your rights? Why not say, I'm going to give up this right I have for the sake of building up a weaker believer? Why not do that? If you can't get there, if you can't do it, it's out of a lack of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it is. It's a lack of love because you can, you're concerned more for yourself and your rights and freedoms than for others being built up in the Lord. Do you hear that? Let's just summarize and bring this to a close here, okay? If the goal for believers, okay, concerning rights and freedoms is that the gospel might be made known to others around us through our life decisions, okay? By gospel known, we're acknowledging an impact on those who are not believing who are around us and those who are believing around us. And again, I will just remind you, the, 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 the context here is that believers are impacted by your decisions, right? And so Paul is giving up of himself 
for the sake of the gospel being made known and clear and properly represented. Okay? What does it mean that Paul has become all things to all people? That his preferences have been put aside for the sake of others. Now, let's just think for a moment. Is it a little cramped in here this morning? Yes or no? Some of you love it. I know, you've told me, okay? Some of you say, this is so uncomfortable, I almost want to wait until they do something and then I'll come back. Or maybe just not at all. It's too uncomfortable. It makes me feel very uncomfortable. I wonder, are you able to put aside your preference in this matter for the sake of others? Is that something you can do? I wonder when we're looking at what we are going to do to resolve this issue, are you able to put aside your own preferences for the sake of others? Are you willing to do that? Do you think that we should be willing to do that? And can we acknowledge that it's hard to do that? Can we acknowledge that it's hard to do that? Yes? Can you see a time coming where it's going to matter whether or not you give up your own privileges and your own rights and your own freedoms and your own preferences and you say, I'm going to, for the sake of the benefit, the mutual benefit of the church, I'm going to back off this, okay? For, for the body's sake. That's a hard thing to do. But Paul is saying, listen, in whatever you do, he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to get there in verse 31, but he says, um, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or sit in a crowded room or not sit in a crowded room or buy a building or don't or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. How would he have you behave and think? Paul's way of life was determined by the gospel. We know that for sure. It was not determined by his culture or his lifestyle preferences, was it? If Paul can sacrifice his rights for the sake of others and their devotion to the Lord, then we should, what? Follow his example and do the same. Because in fact, he's going to say in 1 Corinthians 11.1, you know this verse, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, and it follows on the heels of this argument. As I have laid down my rights, as I have laid down my preferences, as I have laid down my cultural distinctiveness, so should you. Imagine a church like that. How would things be different? So again, for Paul, laying aside these other things, his way of life, it was determined by the gospel, right? It was not determined by his culture or his lifestyle or his own preferences. It was based on something else entirely. So the goal for believers concerning these rights and freedoms is that the gospel might be made known to others around you, your life decisions. I already said that, but that is the main point. Others are watching. Specifically, others in this room are watching you as well. A couple points of application. 
we are called to embody the message of the gospel and embrace our unity in Christ. Do you think, just, just thinking about Paul's life now, do you think that he embodied the message of the gospel? Like he was a living, walking, breathing, gospel emanating machine. This was the gospel in its, in its weakness and everything. This was the gospel. And Paul is calling us to do the same. That in our very livelihood, our very being, the gospel is being made known. I see the gospel in you by how you think, how you talk, the decisions that you make, right? Who you are, what you do, where you go. All these things should be reflective of the gospel, right? And they should encourage me to be more Christ-like, okay? And vice versa, you should see that in me as well. So we are called to embody this message, and I have three things that we should consider. Number one, that we are more concerned with unity than division. Is that true? Do you hear that in this whole tone here? Why not just tell the weaker brothers to grow up and get with it? Because that wouldn't create unity, would it? What if I just looked at you and your weakness and said, just grow up. Actually, some of you like that. Some of you are like, just, just give it to me straight. Just tell me, right? Most of us are not like that. And we say, would you appeal to me instead? Would you love me even though I'm weak? Would you care for me even though I have weaknesses? We're more concerned with unity than division. And that should propel us into this state of mind and this being where we're loving to each other. Number two, we're more concerned with our identity in Christ than our culture or heritage. Uh, the world around us disagrees with that statement, okay? You could even add in here, even though Paul's not talking about it, your sexuality, okay? Your sexuality is not all that there is to your identity as an individual. It is certainly part of it, but the world wants to make it all of it, okay? But the same is true of culture. Same is true of heritage. If Paul can lay down all those things about him, how can he do that? Why can he do that? Because he has found a new identity, what is his new identity? It is in Christ and in Christ alone. So all the other stuff falls. And that is why he said there's neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, slave or free, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. Isn't that why he says that? Now, it doesn't mean that he is no longer male, okay? It just means that that is not his primary identifying factor, that he's male, even though he is male, Okay? And number three, we are more concerned with the gospel than our rights, our freedoms, and our preferences. And for an American, this shoves an arrow in your heart. I said shoves instead of shoots on purpose. The arrow wasn't even in a bow. It's painful. Because this goes against that freedom, individualistic mentality of the United States, of an American. And the gospel doesn't include this idea. Now, we do have freedom, a freedom to obey Christ. We are no longer bound to sin. But we are free in regards to righteousness. But it doesn't mean you are simply free to be your own individual self. Instead, you are to give up your rights and freedoms as an individual self for the sake of the body of Christ. So this kicks against the grain of all that we, most of us, have been taught to believe since we were young. At all costs, fight for your individuality and your freedom. 
But actually what the gospel says is at all costs fight for the gospel that it might be made known. And that's a different life that we're all called to.